welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to introduce to you now. Jessica Setnick is a pioneer of professional education in the eating disorder field. For over 20 years, her emphasis on practical and effective treatment, plus her insistence on patient and family-focused care, has made her a passionate voice on the international stage. Now retired from patient care, Jessica's focus is on advancing the education that non-specialists receive. Many groups, including emergency medicine, primary care, athletic staff, college health, health educators, school counselors, and first responders desperately need information and training on how to identify, assist, and refer those individuals with eating disorders in their population serve. Jessica also leads comprehensive private trainings for hospital staff and current eating disorder teams, helping unify treatment, goals, communication, and outcomes. You can find Jessica on her website at www.understandingnutrition.com. Jessica Setnick, what an honor it is to welcome you to Boundless Body Radio. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, it's such an honor to have you. I'm just looking through the introduction now. I think I missed something somewhere. Yeah, did I miss Did I miss that you were the nutrition coach for the Dallas Cowboys? Oh, no. That was why I became an, a nutrition major in the first place was because I thought I wanted to be the nutrition coach for the Dallas Cowboys, but there wasn't even such a job. I'm just one of those nutty people that's like, oh, well, just because that job doesn't exist doesn't mean anything. I will just go convince them that that's what I want to do, and they'll <laughs> hire me. But along that process, I actually fell in love with uh, helping people with eating disorders. And so I, I never did go that route. <laughs> That's so funny. I love that you were just going to march, uh, march into the office oh, and yeah. tell them what you were going to do. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Oh, I love Try that. Stop me. <laughs> I love that. It fits in so well with your kind of personal story. I mean, you almost didn't really get into nutrition. It was something I guess you kind of stumbled into later on in your schooling. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey and interest in nutrition? Sure. No, you're exactly right. I took nutrition as an elective. I actually started college thinking that I, all I knew was I wanted to be the CEO of something. And so when I got a C minus my first semester in school in calculus, I realized my grades were never going to be good enough to transfer into the business school. And also I realized that when you, you, you don't start at CEO, you start at the bottom and work your way up. So I sort of let that goal go and I didn't really know what I would do. But I started taking all those general requirement classes that you have to take to graduate, and they started to cluster into the anthropology department. So I was taking cultural anthropology and developmental anthropology and all these different kinds of anthropology. So I thought, okay, well, this is what's obviously interesting to me. I'll get a major in anthropology, but I had no idea what kind of career I would have with that. And so if you're not familiar with anthropology, and I wouldn't know what it is if I wasn't a major in it, it's really just the study of humans from a, a you know, macro level. So the study of human cultures, the study of human development over time. And so I loved that. I thought that was super interesting. And then when my friend suggested I take nutrition as an elective, because it was an easy A and she gave me her textbook and I thought, all right, why not? And then I fell in love with it. And I just thought, this is so cool. What happens to food once it goes inside your body? And then add to that the parts of, you know, why you choose the food you choose and how they get to you and all of that. I thought it was just the perfect extension of anthropology because if anthropology is sort of human development on a macro scale, nutrition is, is human development on an individual scale, right? What, what are the things that led you to your eating? What, how did your specific food choices get to you? What, why did you make the choices you made? Why do you feel the way you feel after you eat? Those kind of things. And so I actually went to the career counselor or college counselor, whichever, to say, 
I want to make my own major in nutrition because there wasn't one at my school. And she said, you don't know this because you can't see me in person, listeners, but I'm about 5'1", um, standing on my toes. She said the, the the stack of paperwork to create your own major is about as tall as you are, so you might as well find a major that already exists. And so since I had that anthropology major, I ended up with this major in anthropology and a minor in nutrition, and voila, I went to grad school then thinking I was going to be the Dallas Cowboy nutritionist. And somewhere in that process, one of my teachers said to me, I think for what you say you want to do, you need to become a registered dietitian. And I didn't know what that was. So I researched that. And, you know, however many years later, I I really, um, during graduate school is when I really fell in love with eating disorders as a career, because for the, you know, I think that, that those things that I mentioned, your eating behaviors and the psychology of eating and those kind of things, that really belongs in every area of nutrition. But back in the 1990s, when, which is the time period we're talking about, really it was only kosher to talk about those in the eating disorder field. And so that psychology of eating and all that stuff just really jumped out to me as so fascinating. And that's where I ended up um, pursuing my career in eating disorders, not realizing that I had actually had an eating disorder in college and that all came, you know, to light. The more I learned about it, the more I realized um, that I had had a pretty significant problem. But as with a lot of people, if it doesn't sort of meet this threshold of like endangering your life, I didn't realize it was really a problem at the time. But that's how it all kind of came to pass was really accidentally. Yep, I fell right into it. Wow. I was going to ask you if you had any personal experience with eating disorders. It sounds like you did, but it was only retroactively that you realized it. Why, why do you think you didn't recognize it as a problem at the time? Because it's so normalized. Oh my gosh. When I was in college, my sophomore year over winter vacation, I went home and I did this, essentially this starvation diet. I remember like measuring out my pieces of cantaloupe and stuff. And I lost a lot of weight during that that short, whatever that is, three weeks that you're home. And when I got back to school in my dorm, they were giving out awards for different things just on one night. And the award I got is going to age me, but it was the Tommy Lasorda Award for Dramatic Diminution. And Tommy Lasorda was a baseball manager who had lost a bunch of weight at some point. And so I got the award for losing all this weight during my vacation. And so then it became kind of a thing like, oh, I lost all this weight. I better not gain it back. Everyone will notice type of thing. So when I was around others, I would just sort of eat very selectively and which wasn't enough. And so then in the evenings, I would sneak down to my dorm kitchen and I would just eat like slices of pie and things and cake, you know, just out of the fridge um, because I was hungry because I needed fuel. And that's what sounds good, right? When you're over hungry. So that's sort of the beginning of it. And then as time went on, at some point, a friend showed me how to make myself throw up so that I could drink more. And so that sort of became convenient. I'm using finger quotes um, for when I wanted to get rid of food I had eaten that I felt bad about. So it's like all of these things were sort of, I don't know, rewarded or observed or participated in by other people around me. So it didn't seem like it was really a danger or a bad thing at all when it was just sort of part of what other people in my community were doing. And it, so when I did decide when I, when I was right before I I started grad school is when I realized like this has to stop because if I'm going to be a health professional and give other people advice, then I need to be leading not this lifestyle. And so I remember like, this is going to get kind of grim, but sitting in front of the toilet, like thinking, oh my God, 
that's it. I cannot do that again. And I remember it hit me like a ton of bricks. I hadn't thrown up because of what I ate. I threw up because I was disappointed that this guy I like hadn't been at this party. And it was just like so obvious for the very first time that I was throwing up because I had feelings, not because of the food. And it was shocking to me to realize that. But I, I stuck to my promise to stop doing it. And sometimes I just have to drive around the block, you know, to prevent myself from going home and throwing up. I mean, the desire to, to do it didn't go away just because I decided I wouldn't do it anymore. And so I didn't have the behaviors anymore, but it took a long time, like I said, for me to realize like, wow, that was really destructive. And it's okay to talk about that was the second thing is like, is it even okay to talk about? Because of course, you know, as a dietitian, my, my idea in my head was like, we're supposed to be perfect eaters. So we can't admit that we have problems, but uh, you know, obviously I feel differently about it now. Um, but yeah, absolutely. It took me a long time to realize how severe it had been because I think like everyone else, you know, you kind of minimize sometimes things you're going through, you know, you don't really let yourself recognize how severe it is. Um, so that you can just get through the day. Wow. It occurs to me that a lot of these um, eating disorders start, maybe they don't evolve this way, but they start at least as, as a source of a feeling of control. You know, like when we're flipping around on this planet through space and time and we have pandemics and, and wars and all kinds of crazy shit that we can't, <laughs> we can't control, this seems like one sense of control. I can control what I eat and, and hopefully control how I look and, and, and my perception of what you think of me then becomes something that, that, that feels better to me because I can control it. Is that true? I think that that's a big part of it for a lot of people. I don't think there's, I mean, there's almost nothing you can generalize and say everyone with an eating disorder, fill in the blank. There, there's just too many pathways and too many different experiences. But I do think that that is a big trigger for eating disorders is that feeling of being out of control, whether it is, a, you know, depression is, is the sort of intermediary or anxiety is the intermediary. But the thing that we don't tend to think about very often is that food is a mood altering chemical. And that includes not eating. So eating, not eating, over-exercising, even self-harm. Um, those are things that change our brain chemistry, throwing up. So, so it, when we are in a stressful situation, and some people have that susceptible brain chemistry, right? And then eating or not eating can actually help us feel better. And so I think that's where it's not just a sort of, because um, I, I worry that saying it's about control makes it sound like it's this conscious decision. And so for some people, it may be a very conscious decision. I am under stress. I can control my body. I will do that. But I think for a lot of other people, it's very much subconscious. And it's sort of like, I don't feel quite right. Maybe food will help. Maybe losing weight will help. It's sort of this vague sense. And then doing those things actually causes a neurochemical cascade that actually does feel better. So even if we know maybe this is a harmful behavior, it, it actually does help. Now, you know, long-term, it can be destructive and maybe not even sustainable long-term. But in the moment, right, someone doesn't necessarily say like, I am over-exercising to develop an eating disorder. They think I'm, I'm exercising to manage my stress. That's a good thing. But if that's the only way you have to manage your stress, it can become a problem, right? So the same thing with eating, like it's not really that big of a deal to eat something when you're stressed, you know, if you have other ways of managing your stress. But during something like COVID, like you said, just this whole cluster bomb of all kinds of, you know, stresses on us, it can be really challenging because you're like, all these things that I used to do to manage my stress aren't available to me. What is available? Well, there's food. It's always around. 
Yeah, wow. No, that's such a good point. Um, and that's something that I really learned when I was kind of deep diving into research on this episode is I, one of the questions I wanted to ask you initially was like, do all do all eating disorders come from a childhood trauma of some kind? And, and I figured at, at least a very, very high percentage of, of cases of eating disorder would come from childhood trauma, but that's not necessarily the case from what it sounds like. It sounds like in many different ways of starting for, for many different people, it's, it's so super individual. Is that correct? It's super individual. And I've one of the contributions I've made to the field is to really describe the four, what I think of as the four major pathways toward eating disorders. And yes, adverse child experiences are definitely, I'll put that in the third category of stress and trauma related events. Um, well, stress meaning an ongoing situation, trauma to me meaning sort of, you know, these individual horrible events. And sometimes those stressful or traumatic events can be related to food or not related to food, but they still affect our eating. So yes, that is definitely a pathway is you know, adverse childhood events, but they can also be adverse adulthood events or adverse teenagehood events. So I would say it's not always something in childhood, but the, the issue with childhood events is that the younger you were when it happened, the less skills, the less coping skills you had or explanation skills you had of why is this happening to me? And the, the more of your life has sort of developed with that experience in your rearview mirror. And so I think adverse childhood events definitely have more potential to trigger eating disorders than an adverse adult event. But I have had clients who have developed an eating disorder, you know, with the loss of a spouse or something like that, that's traumatic in adulthood. So it's not isolated to any particular age group, but traumatic events absolutely can, can lead to eating disorders. Um, would you like me to talk about the other categories too? Yeah, exactly. I was just going to ask you that. That would be great. Awesome. Yeah. So the first category to me is the biology related. And I specifically don't use the word genetics in there because genetics is one very specific thing that we think about as being inherited. And biology is so many more things than that. So the perfect example is concussion. You can get a concussion and feel nauseous, not want to eat. But more than that, it even can affect your ability to um, your appetite, um, your ability to, to sense when you're hungry, sense when you're full. Um, Something like COVID, for example, can take away your sense of taste and smell. And I remember my sister-in-law having COVID and saying the worst food ever, it's something she loved, but she said the worst food to eat when you can't taste or smell is guacamole. It just feels like you're eating poo. <laughs> and, you know, right? So there's a very biological basis there for developing a problem. Now, if someone isn't susceptible to an eating disorder, then they might just be like, oh, phew, now I got my taste and smell back done. And everything goes back to normal, but in many cases, or concussion, but in many cases, sometimes it doesn't go back to normal and it can develop into an eating disorder. And in the biology category, I would include things that are sort of metabolic and hormonal, things like hyper or hypothyroidism, things like polycystic ovary syndrome, things that affect your, your that sort of start as a biological factor in your body, but can then affect your eating, affect your appetite and hunger cues, things like that. And so there's so much in there. I would put anxiety and depression into that category, obsessive compulsive disorder, ADHD, all kinds of things that can affect your eating. Basically, anything that can affect your eating can then become an eating disorder if sort of all the stars are aligned there. And, um, and I would say that the things that people with eating disorders do are not things that, that are unique. It's like we've all done some of the same things, skipped a meal so we fit into a certain outfit or, you know, weighed ourselves 
you know, every day or something like that. It, it just, what happens is some people, it becomes sort of an obsession and they can't stop. But it's not like anyone asked to have an eating disorder. There's this biological piece of the puzzle under there. And the second category is addiction related. There's so many connections between substance use disorders and even process addictions like gambling and things like that, that are related to, um, that can be related to eating. And some of it is when someone tries to stop one of those behaviors, then again, food being that mood altering Uh, mood altering chemical can be sort of a substitute in there. And then there's also other connections. Obviously you might have someone who's told to lose weight for their job um, or their sport, and they might, you know, choose a chemical aid for that. Um, You've got a lot of marijuana use that results in, well, obviously the munchies is not new information to anyone, but also cyclical vomiting is starting to happen. A lot of people who are using a lot of marijuana um, and not being able to stop throwing up. Um, so what, what is that? I've never heard of that. Connection. Did you call that cyclical vomiting? Oh. Yes. Cyclical I've never heard vomiting. of that. Wow. Interesting. Oh my gosh. Well, you're going to start hearing more as, you know, marijuana use becomes legalized even more, you know, and it already is quite a bit more than it was before. But when someone is sort of becomes dependent on um, whether they're smoking it or doing edibles or whatever it is, there's a point where um, for some people it can cause nausea and vomiting. And then the problem is that when they try to stop using in an effort to try to stop vomiting, actually the withdrawals now cause nausea and vomiting. So it, it, it can become a problem for someone in trying to keep food down. Yeah. And so for my colleagues who work in um, university settings a lot is where they're seeing it, where someone comes in and they can't stop, you know, they can't keep down any food. And, you know, it's, it's sort of, I don't know. I don't know that that many people want to tell someone at your health, their health center that, that you have, a, you know, a daily marijuana use habit, but, um, but that's what they're finding is if they, if they ask the right questions um, and, and really it needs to be treated medically, obviously if you can't keep anything down. That's a real problem. Um, but that's the kind of thing where, you know, it could look like, oh, this person has bulimia. They throw up after they eat. And but yet the treatment has to be different. And that's where the, the different pathways to eating disorders are important, not necessarily as a theoretical exercise, but because that's how we have to figure out how to treat them. If you take someone who, you know, has a cyclical vomiting problem due to pot and put them in the same group as someone who had a traumatic event at age 12 that led to bulimia, you're talking about people with two different problems being in the same kind of treatment. So it may not work for everybody. Uh, until we figure out what's going on with each person. Yeah. And wow. then that's, gotcha. Yeah. The fourth category is the learned behavior. And that's where I think a lot of eating disorders come into play with, you know, just sort of different kind of oh, messages from society, let's say. Could be messages from your family or a smaller, you know, microcosm. But I think our society is pretty, like I said, I mean, just in my own experience in college, you know, it, it, all these eating disorder behaviors were so normalized that, you know, it took a long time for even me to recognize it was a problem. And I think that's what a lot of people are going through is, you know, whatever their symptoms of an eating disorder are really admired or, you know, praised and, and they don't realize that it's a problem. Wow. So I just that you tell me your questions. No, that's great. I'm so glad you went into such detail and I didn't mean to cut you off, but I'm so glad you explained that. I really appreciate that. I, it, it, it is, it seems, it seems like you're right on 
the money when you say that there's there, since there's different causes and different triggers that all of this needs to be individualized i mean in your career what have you noticed as far as treatment has gone like when you started versus how the industry is now what things have changed has anything changed um, one thing that has changed for the worse, unfortunately, is there's a lot of private equity firms that have bought up eating disorder treatment facilities. And oh, while I am, you know, happily a capitalist at heart, I feel like some of this is really a problem when you're trying to, to you know, make an eating disorder treatment facility into a profit center. Um, it leads to a lot of, or it sort of stems from a lot of systemic problems, um, and then makes more. So we have, you know, a terrible health insurance situation where um, I think it's kind of fraudulent actually, but, you know, a lot of times eating disorder care isn't covered. And there's just so many problems related to sort of the financial aspects of treatment that actually have nothing to do with treatment, but they, they just cause these huge barriers to access for people. And so I think one of the things I've noticed in recent years is that there's so much more of a understanding that eating disorders don't just affect this sort of imaginary population of like white, skinny, affluent teenage girls, even though that's the group that most of the research was done on. And that's sort of the avatar that everyone has in their head or the persona when you say eating disorders, it's like really easy to picture that. But really, eating disorders can affect anyone who eats, and access to care is a huge issue, you know, just like representation. And if you look at an eating disorder treatment center's website and don't see anyone that isn't underweight and you're overweight, or you, you don't see anyone that isn't white and you're not white, you know, there's so many ways that we can feel excluded from being a person who's deserving of treatment. And it's just really a big old mess. But I have seen improvement there. I've seen improvements. Um, with sort of um, more expansive care for people of different genders and all kinds of recognition. Now, it hasn't necessarily completely trickled down into treatment changes, but the ideas are things that I never even heard talked about five or 10 years ago. So there's some improvement there. As far as are we doing a better job treating people with eating disorders, that's kind of tough. I think there's still a lot of individuals in the field and then sort of systems in the field that sort of are like a one modality approach, you know, and if, if I treat you this way and you don't respond, then the problem is you, you're not trying hard enough or that kind of thing, as opposed to, well, we haven't found the treatment that works for you. And something I've, I've seen that's very, very new is there's a doctor here in Dallas, a psychiatrist who previously was an eating disorder researcher, and he is now doing this whole genome kind of assessment on people doing the DNA swab and he's able to identify gene mutations that may be contributing to their eating disorders. So that's really the newest thing that I've heard about in treatment. Um, other than that, I feel like our field is, is, you know, so sadly really behind the times as far as, you know, keeping up with, with what people really need to promote healing. I think that there's been a lot, a lot, a lot of talk therapy and I'm not saying talk therapy is bad. I've done talk therapy and it was really good for me. But I feel like there's so much more that we're not really treating well that, that contributes to eating disorders. Just one simple example is that if you have an eating disorder and a substance problem, you're going to have a really hard time finding a facility that would treat both of those. You're going to go get, you know, you're going to go to rehab and they're going to get you off booze or whatever. And then you, they're going to send you to an eating disorder facility. And, you know, it's real easy to practice one of those problems at the other place. 
And so a lot of times people don't get the help they need. And that seems absurd to me. There's such an overlap between addictions and eating disorders. Why aren't there places that can treat both at the same time? So things like that just seem very behind to me. Um, But hopefully with more awareness, things will continue to improve. Yeah, that's so interesting. That leads me to what my next question was going to be. What is a standard treatment for eating disorder? I I hardly know. I would have thought definitely talk therapy. Um, but what does that even look like? Is it group setting, individual? Like how how is that typically managed? Is that vastly different at different facilities? What what, what tools do people even have yeah. when they get into a facility? So it really depends. And I'm gonna this is gonna sound like I'm going off on a tangent, but I'm I promise I'm not. I'll circle back around. Um, to what does treatment look like? But basically the question you have to ask first is do problems happen when you eat or or happen when you don't eat, right? So that's how we sort of distinguish that someone has an issue. And it's not necessarily about how many times a week you throw up after you eat or things like that, that we sort of want to quantify, like, how do I know I need help? Well, do problems happen when you eat or when you don't? That's really the biggest issue. And so once you answer that question, there's sort of a continuum of how significant are the problems? Are the problems sort of threatening your life? In which case you got to get to the ER, right? Or you have to be inpatient in a hospital. All the way to the other side of, are the problems just sort of bothersome? But they're not really like harming your life. And so where you fall on that continuum or where an individual falls on that continuum, it's kind of going to determine what level of care they need. So treatment in a hospital may involve, you know, IV fluids, it may involve tube feeding, it may involve being on a heart monitor floor, Um, you know, it's going to be a lot of the medical aspect, all the way over to, you know, someone who their eating situation is bothersome or problematic, but not necessarily keeping them from going to school or work. You're talking about someone who might be going to, you know, a few visits a week, maybe seeing their doctor once a week for vital signs, maybe seeing a therapist once or twice a week to kind of talk through the situations in which they're using food. Um, they're not talking about the food, but talking about other ways to cope with the situation, right? Like what do you do when you're mad at your spouse besides like eat a whole cake or something like that? You know, talking through what the, how to handle those feelings. And then maybe meeting once a week with a dietitian on, you know, what is an appropriate way for me to eat to help, help me be in the best possible scenario, you know, when I get home from work so that if I have a fight with my spouse, I'm not in the cake. So it's really, you know, ranges, obviously. Um, So I've mentioned the outpatient care and then the inpatient care. Somewhere in the middle, there are programs where either you stay at home and you might go to groups two or three times a week. Sometimes it's virtual groups. Um, Sometimes people go all day to like a day treatment program where they have, you know, supported meals on site and then go home and spend the night at at night. But the, the basic prongs of treatment, whether you're in a hospital or living at home, are going to be some kind of medical care, some kind of mental health care, and some kind of dietitian or nutritionist visits. And the mental health care probably has two prongs, which is going to be um, the talk therapy or another kind of therapy. Um, it might be um, some, there's one called EMDR that seems to be really helpful, or it might be grief and loss counseling or that kind of thing. Um, but then there also is probably some possible, you know, medication management with a psychiatrist, something like an assessment for depression or anxiety or things that can feed into an eating disorder don't necessarily cause one, but, but may need to be treated in order for someone to really get their eating on track because otherwise it's just constantly derailing them. Yeah, sure. 
strong. Yeah. Mm. So what do you think the success ratio of this kind of treatment is? Like, I know, I know that the the percentages of people who pass away from things like anorexia is pretty high and it's, it's really sad. Just so unfortunate. Um, what, what, what are, in your opinion, like what, what are the success ratios of, of people that get into these clinics? Do most people improve? Do they improve without relapses? Do relapse and relapses often happen? So I can tell you what the statistics suggest, and I'm not the biggest believer in the eating disorder statistics simply because, again, they've you know not traditionally been really accurately looking at, at different groups. But in general, the info that we have basically says that, you know, about 50% of people with an eating disorder were sort of, you know, struggle on their way for, you know, maybe five to seven years and then move on and have, you know, a a life without an eating disorder, but it's going to take, you know, a five to seven year process of medication and therapy and, and dietitian visits and maybe an inpatient stay here and there to get through it. Um, there's another quarter of people. So about 25% of people will have a much easier time. They sort of get it caught right at the beginning, get it handled, move on, they're done. And then there's probably about another 25% or so that, that it's going to be lifelong and, and may end up ending their life. And I hate even thinking about that because I want there to be, you know, hope for everyone. And so in, in most cases, we sort of act as if, you know, and even if we think something seems dire, we, we sort of hope that someone is in one of those categories where things are going to get better. Every so often we're wrong. And, um, and so, you know, unfortunately, oh, that's one of the hard parts of being in this job is, is feeling like, why can't we help everyone? Why are there people who still die of their eating disorder when we have so much treatment, so many possibilities, but there's still so much we just don't know about eating disorders and how to cure them. So there wow. definitely are still tragedies. Wow. I mean, you just have to, you really have to know a story of somebody who has experienced this. We interviewed last year, uh, Michelle Hearn, who is also a registered dietitian. She is the author of The Dietitian's Dilemma, and she describes having an eating disorder when she was, you know, 13, 14 years old. She shares a poem that another girl had written um, that she became friends with. She was a little bit older and and knew that Michelle was going to get out of the clinic, but she was not, and, and she was right. She ended up passing away. But But to hear the story of, like hearing the news, like, like she heard through a crack, the doctor telling her parents that she might not make it. And her first thought was, Oh, thank God. Like, thank God this can end. I'm Mm -hmm. making people suffer. I'm suffering. It's so terrible Mm -hmm. to contemplate, especially at that age, that teenage age where everything's confusing. Anyway, these stories, the individual stories are incredibly like hard to hear. Yeah. Yeah. There's actually a much higher rate, like 30 times higher rate of suicide among women with anorexia than women without anorexia. And it really hopefully will help people understand how painful it is to be in that situation. I'm thinking of a friend of mine who, similarly to the person you mentioned, that she was a teenager and she remembers driving to her appointments with her mom, looking you know across the highway and thinking, I wish one of those 18 wheelers would cross the divider and crash into us. And then I wouldn't have to have this problem anymore. Um, it's really painful. And so it's so unfortunate that sometimes media kind of glamorizes it um, because it's not glamorous to have a mental illness. And I think that that's sort of a, a mistaken idea because, you know, for many people, they feel like, oh, but thinness, thinness is the goal. And once someone's thin, then then, then anorexia was good because it helped them get thin, but it's really not about that. It's really like a wasting disease. It's kind of like saying cancer is so great because it helped you get thin. 
And I know some people probably would agree with that, but for the most part, you can see the the irony in those statements. But for some reason with eating disorders, it's sort of, we don't think of it as like this painful, horrible disease that it is. Instead, we think of it as someone's bad choice or bad decision that they made. Right. You hear this all the time with type one diabetics as well. They need insulin to be able to stay alive, but the insulin makes them gain weight. And so oftentimes you'll have eating disorders where a type one diabetic will withhold insulin from themselves and put themselves in very dangerous situations. It's it's interesting mm-hmm. how strong that mm-hmm. the culture around, you know, being thin, being skinny, I, I think it's gotten better, frankly. Um, it, but it's still so prevalent. And with social media, it, it's, it's like 24 seven, people are getting the message that like, you're not going to be happy until you look like this person, you know? Has yeah. That- it's a very persuasive kind of mythology and it's so false. It's so incredibly false, but we don't know that the difference between the person that sort of says, well, you know, my life isn't going that well. Maybe I, I should lose 10 pounds. And then they lose 10 pounds and they're like, eh, things still aren't going that well. Maybe I'll join a book club versus the person who says, well, that 10 pounds didn't make it work, but maybe I'll lose 10 more pounds and then I'll feel better. Maybe I'll lose 10 more pounds and then I'll feel better. Like we don't know what triggers someone on, on that path. I mean, it's, it seems like it's probably something related to brain chemistry, but we, we haven't been able to isolate it yet. So in, in other words, there are probably people who maybe they do lose 10 pounds and their life is so much better. I don't know any of those people because I only know the people who it turned into a huge problem. So this mythology that, you know, losing weight makes everything better, I think is really, it's just a symptom of our sort of fat phobic society, which I've only recently learned, you know, stems from racism, which I didn't know. And then also this sort of consumerism idea, like if we all just accepted our bodies the way they are, there's so many things we wouldn't need to buy. We wouldn't need to buy special shampoo to make our hair not frizzy. We wouldn't buy razors to shave our legs. I'm female, so that's what comes to mind when I think razors, probably something else if you're male. Um, But, you know, there's so many things we wouldn't buy if we didn't feel like our bodies weren't good enough. So there's sort of this, this sort of capitalist drive to keep us not feeling good about ourselves because that's why we buy more things to help us feel better. But it's pretty much a never ending cycle because, you know, it's never enough. It's never enough. Totally. No, totally. It would be really bad for capitalism if we all just said, like, you know what? Everything's cool right now. Like, I, I like my car. Right? I'm going to keep my car. <laughs> yeah, totally. No, it's yeah. it, it's so interesting. Like, I, you know, working at a gym for 15 years in my career, we definitely saw it all the time where people would be training for a certain event or especially like a bodybuilding contest or show where you are going to get yourself to the most lean and muscular and fit and uh, tan, you know, version of yourself that you could ever be be. And and you think that's going to bring you happiness at the end. And it absolutely does not. And and I would contend strongly that it makes you way more miserable when you realize you did all of that work and sacrifice to get your body looking a certain way, but you are not one iota happier for having stood on a stage and been compared to other people and given a rating that just makes everything worse. It just makes you think that you're never good enough. Uh Wow. Yeah. Yeah. There's so many aspects of life like that. And even just the idea of Comparing ourselves on social media is such a good example. I mean, eating disorders existed long, long before social media. Social media just makes it so much easier. You know, when when I was growing up, I don't want to make any assumptions about your age, but I wouldn't know what any of my friends were doing or what what vacation they were on or anything else. You would just be at your house doing your own thing. And now the idea that someone could be having some fabulous vacation somewhere and suddenly your your comfy bed where you were perfectly happy now doesn't seem good enough because 
it's not, you know, a beachside cabana. And so I feel like that's where a lot of the dissatisfaction, it doesn't stem from, but it, it's festered by that, by being able to constantly see other people where, of course, you know, what is that saying? Like, don't compare your your documentary to someone else's highlight reel, something like that. <laughs> that's like, don't good. Compare, you know, your real life to someone else's, just what they put on social media. And I actually do admire people who put like their crummy days on social media because I feel like it does help you realize like, oh, we're all real people. But there's so much more of the opposite on social media. People in their best day, in their best situation, in the best photo out of 20 that they took, you know, and it doesn't portray a realistic view of what life is supposed to be like. And as adults, I think we're much more able to cope with that and tell ourselves everything that I just said versus someone who's 12 or eight and feels like everyone's doing something fun without them. And they don't have sort of that ability to realize, you know, this is such a tiny portion of someone's day that they put on social media. And it can really, I think, really, you know, do a number on someone's mental health, um, you know, as far as feeling left out and those kind of things. And, and I'm not even talking about like the actual bullying that happens online. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's so pervasive in so many areas of our culture. The comparison is just almost a nonstop thing. And yes, when you're talking about, you know, a competition that actually focuses on a comparison of how you look, it's sort of almost like the the pinnacle of the whole thing. And I'm thinking of um, Kirsten Hagland, who was uh, Miss America. At some point, I, I wouldn't even attempt to say the year because I won't be right. But I heard her speak at an eating disorders event. And she said when she became Miss America, they told her to lose weight. And she looked them in the eye, whoever they is, and said, I'm Miss America. Like, I don't need to lose weight. I'm already the tip of the top of the cream of the crop of what, you know, the beauty ideal of an American woman. So why should I have to lose weight? And I thought, you know, if she hadn't been in a good eating disorder recovery, she wouldn't have been able to say that, right? But the idea that she had been through recovery and, and had a good sense of herself, but that is amazing that you get to that point of being Miss America and someone's still there to say, you need to lose weight. It sounds really similar to what you're describing with bodybuilding. Blows my mind. That's yeah, that's crazy. And so sad. I, I'm just curious. It, it, do you find a lot of mindfulness techniques to be really helpful? Is that something that's actively taught to people who are suffering through eating disorders? It is. And it depends because so you've got sort of mindfulness with the opposite being sort of dissociation or distraction. And in some cases, yes. So if you're, let's say, checking out when you eat and you end up eating the whole pan of brownies, I'll just make that up as an example, then yes, some someone might suggest that you be more mindful. Why don't you cut a brownie out of the pan and go sit outside on your porch swing and enjoy, you know, the breeze and your cup of tea and the brownie and how does it taste and, you know, that kind of thing. What does it remind you of and, and really kind of live in the moment? On the other hand, if you have someone who's really struggling to eat enough um, and, and every bite that they eat feels like it lands with a thud in their stomach, we might say something totally different. Like, can you watch an episode of Friends while you eat so that you're distracted because being mindful almost feels painful to that individual? So again, there's, there's nothing that's going to work for everybody, but absolutely, in a lot of cases, I think mindfulness is helpful, especially when it comes to being mindful of what your feelings are. Uh, because I feel like a lot of times we don't feel our feelings until after we eat. And then we're like, oh, I feel guilty or I feel disappointed in myself or something like that. And I feel like a lot of times, however you're feeling after you eat is how you were feeling before you eat too. So if you can be more mindful of your feelings, I think sometimes that keeps you out of 
those food choices that you regret later. Um, but it's really hard to be mindful of your feelings when we're sort of taught that certain feelings are okay, certain feelings are not okay. And I know for me personally, um, my biggest dilemma that I have talked about with my friends, and luckily we can talk about it and it feels like we can get some support. But the biggest thing I feel like people in my circle are going through right now is the idea of COVID sucks. The war in Ukraine sucks. Like everything feels so difficult right now, but I'm supposed to feel grateful and blessed that like bombs aren't dropping on my house. And I'm supposed to feel good that no one in my house is dying of COVID right now. So I'm supposed to feel good and lucky and happy. And instead I feel discouraged and depressed and, and bummed. And it's like this balance of like, well, I should be so grateful. And I just keep thinking, and this is what we keep talking about with each other and supporting each other and saying, you can feel both. Like you're allowed to have mixed feelings. Our culture is so bad about that. But it is okay to say, I am so grateful that no one in my house is dying of COVID. And I'm also so annoyed because I don't want to wear a GD mask anymore. You know, like it's okay to have both of those feelings or to say like, wow, I feel so lucky that we have so many TVs in this house that everyone can sit in their own room and watch TV. And there's people who during the whole quarantine time had to be in a one room apartment with 12 people and they all had to agree on TV. You know, so I should just feel good all the time. And it's just not realistic. We need to be kinder and more mindful of whatever feelings we have being okay. And so that's where I would say mindfulness may come in the most handy is not necessarily super duper mindful obsession on eating because that can be really obsessive too, right? Um, so it just depends, I guess, on where someone needs mindfulness. But yes, mindfulness in general can be a really awesome tactic. And then on the other hand, there was a study that showed that playing Tetris after they ate was a really helpful intervention for people who tend to ruminate on what they ate after the meal. So actually being mindful of how they were feeling would probably have been counterproductive. Actually doing something distracting is what actually helped them get, you know, past that time period um, of guilt after eating. Wow, I still have a functioning Nintendo, the original, and I do have Tetris, so I will I'll play more Tetris. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> Bust it out. Good example. Funny. Wait, I have to tell you something funny, Casey. Um, I read this research and I wish I could tell you the word, but it was like like people who did a neuro something something exercise after eating decreased their anxiety about the food that they ate. And this was in an eating disorder facility, and I was consulting for a facility, and I was like, I need to know what a neuro whatever. I'll just say neurospeculative, even though I'm sure that's not right, but just because it just makes no sense. So I was like, I neurospeculative activities are so that we can do those in our treatment facility. And I looked up the original research and it was people played Tetris after a meal. I'm like, why couldn't you just say people played Tetris? (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. I love that. you know? Yeah, that's great. Wow. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I love that. And yes, I'll be playing Tetris today. That's great. Um, my next question, I guess, is about identification. Yeah. And I, you okay. know, I, I appreciate your work and what you're doing now and working with big groups of people in the medical field who, you know, maybe have a good opportunity to recognize this and without the proper training, they could, they could let it slide. I, I assume they're probably not that great at that anyway, which is why you're doing the work you're doing to begin with. But how about, how about on the individual level, how can you tell when this is starting to be a problem and you may need to seek help? And also how about for a loved one watching somebody else who's recognizing that something might be, um, amiss and they need to, they need to do something about it. How would they go about that? Yeah. So the first thing is, is I'm going to go back to something I mentioned, which is do problems happen 
when you eat or don't eat. And that's really the key to the whole operation. So it's not about, you know, again, like meeting some kind of criteria. Like if you looked up online, like if you Google, do I have bulimia? You know, it's going to have some very specific things and you may not meet all of them. And that doesn't mean that you aren't deserving of help. And so, you know, it's kind of the way that, you know, I think someone might look at their alcohol use. You know, how do I know if I have a problem? And for me, it would be like, are you drinking in the morning? Are you drinking a certain amount? Like, are you drinking hard liquor, you know, at 9 a.m. or whatever? You know, but that's not really what counts. What counts is do problems happen when you drink? And that is really the issue because someone could drink three beers and sit on the couch and watch a football game and be like, yeah, that was fun. Go to sleep, wake up, go to work in the morning. Whereas someone else could drink those same three beers and, and crash their car into a tree. And so it's not about how much or when or et cetera. It's about do problems happen when you drink? So that's my sort of, you know, explanation of, of the basic question is do problems happen when you eat or when you don't eat? And, and that in itself is enough of a reason to make a call to um, a dietitian. And you can just Google eating disorder dietitian, whatever your area is, and see what you find. And I feel like that's really the best start because, um, a, you know, and I am a dietitian, so I'm biased. I think we're awesome. But a dietitian is a better first step, I think, than either a doctor or a therapist. And I specifically say an eating disorder dietitian, even if you don't know for a fact you have an eating disorder because our biggest job is sort of sifting through someone's experience, what they're telling us and saying, actually, this is a thing to go to the doctor about. Oh, this is actually a thing to go to a counselor about. Oh, actually, this is a thing I can help you with. We're actually really, really good at that. Whereas I feel like therapists are really good at what they do and doctors are really good at what they do, but they're not really good at referring to each other. They're not really good at saying you need this other kind of care. And dietitians, I feel like are really oriented in that way. So that would be my, my suggestion is talk it through with the dietitian and, and they can help you figure out, you know, if, where you need to go for help. The other aspect or the question that you asked about a loved one, that is more challenging because you may not be aware of everything, right? And so if it's someone you live with, you know, it, even so someone can conceal things if they want to. Um, but if it's someone you don't live with, if it's a friend or something like that, then, you know, it's even harder because you really don't know the whole story. So your first approach is really just to say, you know, hey, I, I'm worried, but I would recommend you do it at a really neutral time, like not during a meal, please not during a meal or not right after or something like that. But just at sort of a separate time, say, listen, I, I'm not really sure how to approach this, but, you know, I've been worrying about you and I, you don't have to talk to me about it, but I just wanted you to know that I'm, you know, a listening ear and I'd be happy to, to try to help. This is what I've observed. You know, I've noticed that you tend to jump up after the meal and you're gone for a while. And I don't know, I just make up in my head that something's going on. You know, just say it as neutrally as you can, um, hopefully you know, showing that you're a safe person that's not going to fly off the handle, you're not going to judge, and you're just opening the door for them to confide in you. Ultimately, your goal in any of those kind of conversations is to find out, if you find out the person is already getting help and you didn't know about it, that's good enough. That's all you need to know is that there is someone that is helping them with it, right? They, they've told their doctor or school counselor, um, they're working with a dietitian. Those are the kind of things that you you can sort of let it go and say, you know what, I'm so glad you're getting help. I'm glad I mentioned it. We never have to speak of it again. But of course, if there's ever anything I can do, you know, I'm available. Because sometimes it's, you know, 
it's really helpful to have an ally and you don't necessarily know who your allies might be. But just a simple example of what someone might say is, you know, listen, I'm, I'm really glad that you asked me. I don't want to talk about it, but could you do me this favor? And next time we're out with friends and someone starts talking about how many calories are in the food, could you just sort of change the subject? Because I really don't want to talk about it. It's really hard on me, but I also don't want to draw attention to myself, you know? And so there's simple things you can do as an ally, but you kind of need to know what they are from the person who, you know, is having the issue. Yeah, no, that's really yeah. practical. I love that. Thank you for that answer. And, and and listening has to be just such a huge skill that needs to be practiced in this situation, correct? Yes, because there's so much shame and embarrassment related to, I mean, we all have quirks we do with our food and some of them are embarrassing. You know, I like to wake up in the middle of the night and you know, eat like two little Debbie snack cakes. And this is the first time I've said that out loud. And now I'm saying it, you know, basically someone I just met 53 minutes ago, but you know, I'm not ashamed of it. And that's the key. There's so much shame that people do with or have about their food and their eating and their perks and their likes and their dislikes even. And so to just say like, I'm, I'm a safe place for you to just be yourself is such a gift to people. And, and you have to mean it. You have to mean it. You can't go, you know, tell someone else what they told you, or you can't make fun of them later. You have to really mean it. But, but just having a safe space to share what's going on with your eating can be really a hugely important thing. I mean, there, I have had patients who said things like a school counselor saved my life. And I'm like, what did they do? And they're like, well, they just let me come in there and eat my lunch. I mean, it, it doesn't have to be a huge intervention, right? It's just being okay with, with someone in their sort of imperfect state. But the bigger problem happens when someone clearly has a problem and isn't getting any help. You know, what do you do? And my best suggestion is that is the time when you want to actually make an appointment with a counselor for yourself. And it actually is ideal if it's an eating disorder counselor, eating disorder specialist of a counselor, because they're going to know what's, what to tell you. In other words, you're not going to a counselor to be like, here are all the terrible things that happened in my life and here's my relationship problems and these are the bad dreams I'm having. If you have a counselor like that, that's great. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about you going to see a counselor and saying, look, there is someone in my life that I think has an eating disorder. They're either in denial or they're not getting help. I'm worried. Can you help me? And so what I would suggest is that you make that appointment for yourself. And if you're close enough to this other person to say to them, listen, I am concerned about you. I know you don't want to talk to me about what's going on, but I have made an appointment with an eating disorder counselor because I need to learn what I can do to take care of myself because I am worried about you. And so you can say to them, I would love it if you would like to come with me. I would much rather you be there. I will be talking about you. I won't mention you by name, but I'll be talking about my worries and what I've been experiencing. And, you know, I think 85% of the time that person might want to come because nobody wants to be like talked about behind their back. Like, you can't go talk about me if I'm not there. Well, then you can come with me. But if they say, no, that's, that, that's not happening or I can't believe you would do that to me, you can say, you know what, I'm not doing it to you. I'm doing it for me because this is a stressful situation for me and I need to learn about how best I can support you. And I know you don't want to talk with me about it. So I'm going to go talk to an expert. And to me, what you're doing when you do that is yes, A, you are inviting someone to go to therapy. And so, you know, you're sort of paving the way for them. If someone has 
for any reason wanted to do that, but hasn't had the courage to make the call or hasn't even known what to do or where to go. Yes, you have like rolled out the red carpet for them to get in to see an expert. And that's an amazing gift you've given someone. But the other thing you're doing without even maybe realizing it is you're showing that when you're in a stressful situation and the skills you bring to the table aren't adequate, it's okay to ask for professional help. And so you're doing that. And so you're actually role modeling the behavior that you'd like to see in your loved one, even if they're an adult and they're not willing to do that. It's still planting the seed. And if you can learn some more about the condition, get some advice on what you might be able to do to help, it can actually sort of improve that relationship to the point where maybe that person would eventually say, you know, that counselor that you've been talking to, can I go with you sometime? And that would be the best possible outcome that could happen. Mm, Wow, that was incredible. I have never thought about getting therapy in that way, doing it not for you, but for me. And if you'd like to come along, you're more than welcome. That's such a great approach and so disarming. You're right. I think so many more people would, would, you know, want to at least be a fly on the wall for something like that. Um, and, and, and hopefully get some tools along the way. I think that's a wonderful approach. Mm-hmm. How, do you think more of this will be integrated into our society? Do you see this getting better? Or do you see this as a problem that, you know, we can help the people who we can help in our own little sphere? And that might be about it. I see it getting better. And maybe I'm just like a pathological optimist. But I am such a believer in this younger generation. My niece is 14 years old. And she posts things on her Instagram that are so inclusive and they're so anti, you know, sexual assault and things that I am 1000% sure I was not thinking of in ninth grade. And I just feel like they're activists and advocates and they are, I, I just believe in them changing the world. So I'm really very, very, very hopeful that, you know, this is going to change. Unfortunately, in my 25 years in practice, I only one time had a child come into my office with their parent and said, you know what, I made myself throw up after dinner. And I told my mom, that's not right. I need to talk to someone. One time that a child actually like voluntarily told their parent, like, I need help. I feel like this generation is going to change that. They're going to be the generation that is totally comfortable talking to their friends about things, talking to their parents about things, getting help for their friends whose parents aren't accepting. They're going to take them to their own parents and they're going to say, this person needs help. I need you to call this person's parents. And they're just, they're activists in a way that that I just know my generation wasn't. And so I, I feel like there is a lot of hope for the future. Now, it's still quite a ways away. Um, but I, again, I, I did mention that sort of the, the recognition of sort of the systemic racism in, in the eating disorder field and, and some of the exclusions that we've put on people. Like, well, if you're larger, then you don't have an eating disorder. Only skinny people have eating disorders. Incorrect. Like, I feel like some of these things are changing and it's not an overnight thing. But yes, I have a lot, a lot of hope that there's a lot more healing to come for a much wider variety of individuals. And maybe, maybe, maybe we could stop with the, you know, some of the stuff that's actually creating eating disorders, get some of this DNA treatment going. So, I mean, I may not, I may have retired by then, or I may still be fighting the good fight, but but hopefully it'll be within my lifetime and I'll get to 
to see the changes. But yeah, it's happening slowly but surely. That's amazing. And that's so positive and upbeat too, because I've heard you talk about how your eating habits were probably determined two or three generations ago. The way my grandparents were raised by their grandparents mm-hmm. who survived the depression is absolutely going to be directly, you know, affecting the way that I, you know, view food and the way my parents taught me about food. And that carries over. And so if we can get the positive message going the other way, that could hopefully help us for generations to come. I know the pendulum has to swing each way, but that's that's great. I'm, I'm glad you feel optimistic about these situations. Sometimes I get a little pessimistic that things may or may not change, but um, I, I really appreciate your outlook. Tell us a little bit about the work you're doing at Understanding Nutrition. Okay, so the main thing I do now is it's sort of two arms. One is I do phone and video consultations with other eating disorder professionals and other dietitians, help them kind of navigate the challenges that they're having in their work. Um, usually, you know, related to people who don't understand eating disorders and trying to sort those things out with them. And then the other part is I do presentations. I travel and I give sometimes day-long workshops, sometimes hour-long. I like the day-long ones. I feel like those, we really get a lot accomplished and really just try to to meet people where they are. Often for me, it's, it's not eating disorder specialists. It's more of your primary care type of group or even educators, school counselors, school nurses, because I feel like that's the first line of defense. And if an eating disorder goes missed or minimized at that level, sometimes it takes a lot of years before someone actually gets into specialty care. So we really, if we could, if we could identify and help people earlier on, it it would make a huge difference. So that's what I do is I go out there and try to educate health professionals on how to help people with eating disorders. That's amazing. What important work you're doing and even being retired from, you know, your main gig for so long to be able to continue to share this message. And as you said, fight the good fight, I think is really wonderful and really inspiring. This has been an awesome conversation. I think it's really vitally important that more people have awareness around this because I I truly believe that disordered eating is way more prevalent than any of us wants to admit. I was just wondering if you had one simple thing that you would like to leave with the listener from this conversation to be today, what would that one thing be? Oh, I would say whatever is that thing that you feel embarrassed about, whatever is that thing, whether it has to do with food or something else, whatever it is that you think you need to hide, find a safe person and tell them, or if you think of a safe person, write it down on a piece of paper, even if you write it on like a bed nap and you throw it away right afterwards, because shame is what kills. Shame, not being able to be your true self, feeling like there's something about you that's so broken and horrible that you're unlovable. That is what kills. There is nothing about you that is so bad that you you can't get help. That would be the number one thing. Wow, that's a beautiful answer. Jessica Setnick, where would you like people go to find you and connect with you and your work? Yeah, so jessicasetnick.com is my umbrella website that basically you can find anything about me from there. And if you have a specific question or you want help finding an eating disorder specialist in your area, I'd be happy to try to help. You can find me through email at jessica at jessicasetnik.com. Oh, and if someone happens to be a professional and they want to look for my workshop, it's called Eating Disorders Bootcamp. And the website is eatingdisordersbootcamp.com. But every single thing I just said, if you just go to jessicasetnik.com, you'll find links to everything. And there are a bunch of presentations and things like that that I've given on the media page. And if this is something you want to learn more about, that would be a good place to start. 
That's awesome. We will link to all of that in the show notes. Jessica Setnick, thank you so very much for this important work that you've done. Um, really sorry you didn't become the nutrition coach for the Dallas Cowboys, but you made the best of it. <laughs> <laughs> You've made the best of it, and you're sharing a message which is so critically important while people are really suffering, and not only on the micro level with individual people, but also training other people to, to like you said, identify this so that we can help make a dent in this problem. So thank you so very much for all of your work, and thank you so very much for coming on our show today. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Absolutely great. And this has been another episode of Boundless Body Radio. As always, thank you so very much for listening to Boundless Body Radio. It's really inspiring and amazing to see some of the reviews that we have been getting and also to receive so many messages and emails about how these episodes have improved our listeners' lives. And so thank you so very much. We are so happy to bring these episodes to you and provide them for free. And we really hope that they help you in your life. Uh, we have just passed two major milestones, which is absolutely mind-blowing to me. And basically, we did both of these in pretty much the exact same day. We have just passed 100,000 downloads worldwide of Boundless Body Radio, and we have just launched our 250th episode, which is absolutely amazing. Like I said, I never imagined we could reach that many people. We always want to keep you updated on things that we're doing on our website. So if you go to myboundlessbody.com, you can always see what we're up to. This month, we have a link that you can go and schedule a functional movement screen, which we do virtually over Zoom. A functional movement screen is a series of seven different movements and three different clearing tests, which is designed to find weak links in the body, such as muscle imbalances and joint stability issues. It's a really great tool for discovering inefficient movement. And even if you're not experiencing pain in certain areas of your body, it's something that can prevent injury later on. Some muscles need to be stretched, some need to be strengthened, and we can help you create a plan around that so that you can stay healthy and continue to move well for the rest of your life. So again, you can go and schedule that at myboundlessbody.com. You will also see the other services that we offer. You can always schedule a complimentary 30-minute consultation with us to really chat about anything that you like. And remember, if you are enjoying Boundless Body Radio, please take a minute, give us a rating or review on Apple. It really helps get this passion project out to other people. And thank you again for tuning into Boundless Body Radio.